Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food production and food consumption. On this Red Shirt Friday, we talk about freedom. But joining us from North Dakota, Curtis Junt, this has been far too long in coming, but we won't complain about what we didn't do. We're just going to talk about what we are doing. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. How are you, Trent? I am absolutely fantastic. Woke up today. It was a it was 30 degrees. You know, when you and I were together last week, we never got above zero. For several days, we're colder than North Dakota. So, you know, we've got some waters to get thawed out. Absolutely. Yeah, we have uh we have uh, no, I wouldn't call it dense fog, but we have fog warnings this morning, and it's pretty slick out there. So yeah. with that freezing rain we we got Sunday. All the fog that we've had, we know there's some serious snow coming. But speaking of a blizzard and snow, there seems to be a blizzard of information about the safety, what's going on with natural gas pipelines, what CO2 pipelines are, what they're not. I continue to have people tell me, oh, you know, pipelines are the safest transportation of any liquid we can come up with. I said, yeah, I don't disagree with that. CO2 is not the same animal. And this is your bailiwick. First of all, give us just an insight into your history, Curtis, in the natural gas pipeline and what it is that you've done. Sure. Um, Right out of NDSU with my engineering degree, I spent 15 years with an integrated... um, Utility company, uh, energy company, uh, spent 15 years in the interstate, uh, interstate building, interstate, intrastate gas gathering lines, and actually the last stint of my 15 years there was drilling shallow gas wells and fracking them, um, which I did 92 to 97. I fracked about 120 uh, shallow gas wells, and I was in charge of all that, built the gathering system, sat in the kitchens of ranchers. Um, but prior to that, I was part of building the interstate and intrastate gas pipelines. And for the next 20-some years after that, I, I basically did my own thing and um, raised money and tried to build uh, an integrated natural gas companies. And I was successful in doing that in many and various ways. And um, by 2016, I had pretty much had enough with the two dollar or less natural gas prices and i just retired and left and been doing other things since um still involved in uh energy still follow everything in the natural gas industry um but i'm i do mostly end use things now uh you know uh, economics for folks to upgrade their hvac and things like that so i stay busy i have lots of hobbies and of course, this uh, CO2 pipeline business for the last year and a half has been a pretty significant part-time volunteer job. So that's just I was going to say, I think you're spending more time volunteering, talking about <laughs> what's going on with CO2 pipeline than you ever spent getting paid to build a natural gas pipeline. That's my assessment. Well, uh, that, that's that, uh, probably true. Before we go any further... I just want to spend a moment on natural gas because I've got a dear friend in Illinois that daily keeps me updated on what's going on. We saw a spike that three-day weekend of Martin Luther King that was pretty unprecedented in natural gas. It appeared in natural gas prices. Yesterday, the price of natural gas was, two. Uh, this is on the futures, $2.42 
which puts it at $2.42 per unit of energy. And you compare that to uh, heating oil, number two heating oil at $19.45, propane at $9.15, electricity at $8.95 per unit of energy. Natural gas continues to be a very economical supply of energy but I'm greatly concerned, Curtis, what's going to take place with that because we're pulling natural gas into places where we should be using coal, quite frankly. What's your take on all of that before we talk about safety aspects? Okay. Uh, yeah, I have a lot to say about that, and I'll make it short here. But natural gas is still by far the most economical fuel to heat your home. Um, for example, at $1.59 a gallon propane, I ran this for some friends here who did a winter pre-buy at $1.59 a gallon for this winter. Our natural gas prices that we pay up here in, in Bismarck are still uh, one-third that. So when you talk about uh, spiking propane prices and fuel oil, just like gasoline at the pump, they're not the prices aren't regulated. Where natural gas, that's another nice thing is you don't have those price spikes uh, in addition to the convenience of not having to have your tank, uh, propane or fuel oil tank uh, filled. But uh, natural gas, we have a significant abundant abundance of natural gas we can generate, which is part of what drives, when you see that cold snap happen, it's not just the heating demand, it's the demand for generating power with natural gas. And you say, well, why, why are we generating so much power with natural gas? Well, just like you said, Trent, We've been, thanks to the progressive green movement, we've been uh, taking coal plants off the grid uh, in, a, in an unprecedented uh, amount, uh, which is by far, other than hydroelectric, our lowest uh, form, lowest cost and most reliable baseload. And when you bring all this wind and intermittent power on, the only way you can put that on the grid is that you match it up with about 40 plus percent of natural gas fired generation. So if you're going to build a wind park, you have to show the grid that you have backup power. For example, look at the weather we just had, Trent. We were freezing our behinders off here in 20, 30 below weather for 10 days or more. The wind was zero, pretty much. At 20 mm -hmm. below zero, those wind blades feather and they go to zero. And then if you get too strong of a wind, even if it's you know 80 degrees outside, I think it's over... 55 or 60 miles an hour, they feather back. Uh, what fills in the gap when that happens? Natural gas fire generation. They're aeroderivatives. They're, they're based on the technology of, of air, airline turbines because they can throttle up and down, um, just continuously up and down and up and down without hurting them. And they're extremely expensive to build. And when natural gas prices spike like they did in 2021, our electric rates go up because our electric bills all have a natural gas cost a component to them. So um, when you look at electric, using electricity for heat, when you look at using fuel oil or natural gas, you are still going to have uh, natural gas being your lowest form. Uh, what I have Henry Hub this morning, which is what trades on NYMEX, natural gas is 213 uh, a, a million BTUs. Mm -hmm. That's what it closed at yesterday. And that's for the prompt month, the next month of February. So right now the numbers I'm I get every day here are for the trading for February and it's two thirteen, and then I also get reports every morning on you know what the balance of twenty twenty four happens to be, 
and and they're pretty much all below three dollars a million BTUs. So that is your uh, propane's not going to beat that. So you're not concerned about a a spike in demand because I I mean. I was in Delta, Utah not long ago. Delta, Utah had a coal-fired power plant that was supplying so much of the West with electricity. They've converted that to natural gas. Are you concerned that we will convert enough of our demand for energy from whatever that may be, coal, i.e., all the above, to natural gas, that we will see a spike in natural gas prices? We will, Trent, and I am concerned, and I have been. And I've written letters to the editor over the last 10 years in support of the Lignite Energy Council and the necessity that we keep our baseload coal plants. I mean, I'm I'm a champion of, uh, as an energy economist, I'm a champion of baseload energy being coal. And our coal companies have done a tremendous job over my f- almost 42-year career taking mercury and nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide out of their emissions and what what does that leave? Uh, just what does that leave to try to keep attacking them? CO two, and 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 the, the progressive green movement came up with this idea thirty plus years ago that hey CO two we can attack natural gas with that too. And you and I both know that CO two. I've heard your show. You've heard probably heard me say it. Uh, the CO two that we're emitting down here on Earth is life giving and is necessary for a growing population. And uh, I I want, you know, this all of the above energy stuff. I'm not at all in favor of intermittent power. I was very anxious last week that we were gonna have rolling brownouts or blackouts like we did in February of 2019 with the polar vortex going down to Texas. So mm-hmm. um, Thank God for the coal-fired power, and thank God for natural gas-fired generation. Fossil fuels, or we would have been all a little cold this last couple of weeks. You brought up a whole another dimension, Curtis, that I've spent a lot of time talking about. And the Department of Energy says that coal-fired power plants since 1980 have reduced 27% of their CO2 emissions, 87% of their nitrous oxide emissions, 92% of their sulfur oxide emissions, to the point where... We now have to add sulfur to fertilizer mixes because we've improved, we've not improved. We've depleted the atmosphere of sulfur that we should. I take a nitric oxide supplement every day because it's important for our health. And as you just said, CO2 is the embodiment of life. And we're trying to eliminate all of these things that make life better. But we got to go to a break. We got to get to a break. More Curtis Junt right after this. Roll route. Welcome back. Roll out the program. Curtis Junt joining us. When you hear the statement, and this is a guy who's been involved for his entire lifetime. When you hear the statement in a proposed CO2 pipeline that pipelines are always safe, what do you say? Not all humans are safe. Some are very dangerous. Not all guns are the same. Not not all airplanes are safe. I mean, it, that's, that's the most... Uh, Painting with a broad brush, false statement you can make. It's what you move through them, Trent, mm-hmm. that differentiates one from the other. And who operates them and what their, you know, their um, experience level. And I mean, what you move through a pipeline, yes, the, the line that it's the safest way to move any liquid or gas is true. But what you move through them 
makes all the difference. How different is CO2 from natural gas or petroleum? It's significantly different. Um, if you have uh, an oil spill, you you have to you have to worry about cleaning up the soil and possibly the water uh, if it seeps into the groundwater. Um, you're not going to have a, a contamination of the air or a unless you know somebody strikes a match and starts crude oil on fire. But you'd have to like say strike a match. It wouldn't uh, you wouldn't start a crude oil spill with just running your vehicle up to it. Then you have natural gas, where if you have a rupture there, you're not going to have long, long-term long contamination. You won't have any real contamination of the soil or the water or or even the air. And if somebody comes up to it driving their vehicle and, and the CO2 cloud, and CO2 is half the weight of air, so it goes up. But depending on pressures and temperatures, it can disperse radially. And, and as it mixes with oxygen, a vehicle could start you know, ignite it, but that keeps it localized. Then you have CO2, which your your biggest thing there is not the land or the air or the water, except, or the water or the land, but it is the air in that it's 1.5 times heavier than uh, air and it will move to the ground. It's odorless, it's, um, it's invisible, and it's an asphyxiant. And at 4%, percent, uh, 4%, uh, uh, content of co2 per cubic foot that you breathe we breathe 0.02 to 0.03 to 0.05 percent co2 by volume and at four percent you'll start getting dizzy and a little disoriented and as it moves up to eight percent trent then you have minutes you start getting into the minutes to survive at eight percent you'll be passed out and you have minutes to to survive at ten percent death is imminent you don't have any time. If you're in 10% or greater, you are pretty much like jumping in a pool of water. How long can you hold your breath? I marvel at the fact that people either don't know or choose to ignore that the newest pork and poultry plants in harvesting animals put them in a CO2 chamber to put them to sleep at 8%, which you just described. It's going on at Huron, South Dakota, as we speak, at a turkey plant. And and everybody wants to just kind of ignore that fact when it comes to planting these CO2 pipelines next to communities or next, exactly to, a, or next to a single farmstead. Yeah, it's um, I have dozens of landowners impacted by this and ranchers, big ranches and horses and cattle and and uh, been invited to a number of them to come see their operation. Um, so I come from a small crop farming background in Pierce County, North Dakota, where I was born. You know, I, 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 we almost all of us come from some sort of an egg or, you know, ranching background. And my, I just, my heart goes out to these people. They were just going about their business, trying to, you know, keep the ranch and the farm going. And, and all of a sudden this just comes out of nowhere and blindsides them. And, a number of them have had to pay legal fees and uh, several I've talked to, it's created a lot of anxiety and stress. Um, some have had to get on some medication to deal with the anxiety. And, you know, this is creating an obstacle on their land. That's going to be a nonstop worry about when something's going to happen. Once this is built, plus they can't ever build anything over it. I mean, they don't control that, that right away, that easement anymore. That's pretty much just going to be, Probably not the same grassland, but it's it's <laughs> what's it going to be good for? 
you know, growing grass, maybe you can grow crops on it, but God forbid if your tractor sinks down, which you and I have both seen pictures of those in the spring and those big 12-wheel tractors going out, they're sinking down six, seven feet in the ground. Well, the pipeline tops only four feet. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Chris. Why, why are they proposing a pipeline through the tundras of the Dakotas and even in Iowa at four feet under the surface? I, the, nobody would even bear a pipeline or a water line or anything at that shallow of a depth. Why? Well, uh, Trent, we uh, in the natural gas industry, we, we bury our pipes at a minimum of three feet below plow depth which puts it pretty much four feet to the top of pipe. And that, that I believe, is in the FIMSA rules, the, the depth of burial. Um, natural gas, when we move through it, it's very dry, very dehydrated. We don't have to worry about freezing like mm -hmm. you do with a water line or a sewer line that are buried about eight feet. Sure. So the CO2 line, there's, they, they are, it's incumbent upon them, Trent, to dehydrate this like I've used the term drier than a popcorn fart, it's going to have mm -hmm. to be really dry because unlike natural gas, CO2 is a considerably more corrosive into the inside of a pipe because it mixing with any moisture at all, it forms a light carbonic acid. Well, you know, you that's just going to accelerate the um, uh, corrosion and the building of iron oxide inside that pipe. So their compressor stations and monitoring their water content of that CO2 is going to be extremely important. Um, you know, there's just so many other facets that they have to, that come along with a CO2 pressure, a high pressure pipeline, even a gaseous one like Trailblazer is going to be moving a gas. It doesn't have to move a super crit critical fluid like what Summit's doing. But you, there's so many other facets of what they have to be uh, diligent about that really are not the same in natural gas, methane, natural gas pipeline. So, yeah, I think most people forget that uh, natural gas is what ninety percent methane. Um, no, actually, it's more than that. It's about ninety six percent methane. Pretty much, uh, that's pretty uh, or more. I wouldn't have even gotten that in a horseshoe game, Curtis. But anyway, uh, <laughs> final thing that I wanted to ask you: my my home state of Nebraska is talking about. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but they're trying to convince people that they're going to run CO2 through a natural gas pipeline. Would you ever suggest that? Uh, that That is something that does concern me. But here's what's going on there. That Trailblazer pipeline is owned by the same company that owns Rockies Express, and they pretty much run parallel to each other. So think about this. Uh, they you, you take natural gas infrastructure and you go to the FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and they approve the conversion of that pipeline. I just read the beginning of the order this morning. It's 69 pages, and by the end of today, I'll have it all read. What I did read is there are 392 miles are going to be converted to CO2. It's going to run a gaseous phase because it doesn't, you have to get above close 1,070 PSI. And that's at 87 degrees. So as your temperature of the CO2 in the pipe goes down, to keep it in a certain phase, supercritical, you have to pressure it up more. So that's what Summit's doing. They're going to be, you know, 2183 PSI. They'll be well above that 1070 PSI. So Trailblazer doesn't have that doesn't have a high enough pressure rating, so they won't be able to get into supercritical. So they'll move a gas. 
So what they're doing is they got approval to take 392 miles of a natural gas pipeline out of service. They're, uh, it's got two electric ga uh, gas compressors and one natural gas compressor. Then their pipeline, their sister company pipeline owned by the same Tallgrass Energy is going to upgrade the Rockies Express pipeline and add, I don't know how many compressors, a bunch of compressors, and they're going to spend millions of dollars on that. And they, they got approval to do that in the same order. Well, who do you suppose is going to pay for all the upgrades to that Rockies Express pipeline? All their ratepayers. <laughs> and so you take and start converting. It's it's a way to get around. The, the states have no say in the safety. And, and FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, relegated all the safety of the trailblazer conversion of to CO2 to FEMSA. And we know where FEMSA is right now in all the rulemaking. They don't have rules that really adequately address this new CO2 build out running close to rural schools to cities like Bismarck, um, Sioux Falls, and 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 uh, that that brings on a whole new emergency response plan when you're having to have an emergency response and a and your first responders that can respond to try to protect a, a city like Bismarck Mandan of a hundred thousand people and they don't have any of the equipment, barely any of the equipment to do that from breathing self-contained breathing apparatus to vehicles that can run in in you know in a co2 situation which is not internal combustion engines which by the way summit in a meeting with first responders here in bismarck december 1st told them that oh your diesel first responder vehicles will run in a concentration of up to 15 percent co2 by volume curtis junt second half roll route just ahead Welcome back, Trent Luce, into the second half of Rural Route. Curtis at Junt with so much information to share, we barely get time to talk about who makes all of this possible. Don't forget the Apache sprayers will be on display at Simpson Farm Enterprises February 13th in Great Bend, Kansas, February 14th, Ransom, Kansas. There are other scheduled events. Go to simpsonfarm.com for full details, but I plan to be at Great Bend and Ransom Hope to see you on Valentine's Day. Now back to Curtis Junk. Curtis, the junk still here. You, you're just like, you're stuck to me now. I'm not going to let you go. You know that, right? <laughs> you know what? Any way I can help the cause, Trent. Yeah. I just want to I just want to direct line and tap into all that energy knowledge that you, I see right here between here and here in you. <laughs> well, not, to, not, yeah. not to mention, it looks like you're a bit like Einstein because you got this beautiful head of hair. But then you got all these frayed little white hairs coming out of the back of your head, which is actually an eagle. <laughs> it, it is. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a bald eagle fanatic. I've got uh, just all kinds of them all over our place, from bronze to evil car carvings. I, I love the bald eagle and what it stands for. Being a scavenger country. and eating what something else killed. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have to tell you, when I was driving along a highway and there was a beautiful bald eagle gnawing on a dead skunk it broke my heart but yeah, anyway <laughs> right <laughs> okay here's the deal curtis junk keeping a keen eye on what's going on in the energy world how's that for a great eagle analogies analogy yeah that's pretty accurate so 
You think soon we're going to see diesel pumps at the gas stations that have 15% CO2 added to your diesel mix? Is that where we're headed? Well, I don't know about CO2. This whole uh, this this whole sustainable jet fuel and and you know what I'm hearing is coming out of ethanol plants. That uh, you know this is something that's kind of pretty new to me. I'll be honest with you. You're you're talking about a renewable energy facet that this fossil fuel energy guy hasn't really delved into much. But the little bit I have looked at, yeah. They're just like biodiesel. Um, you know, they're going to start trying to blend. How they're going to, is it methanol? I don't know what it is. They're going to try to blend something that they're going to be concocting at an ethanol plant byproducts. And this is, maybe you know more about sustainable jet fuel than I do, but. Well, um, let me, let me tell you my most recent conversation. And I don't think I know more about it, but. I, I I made this oath to myself that I'd never fly again, and now I've flown four times in the last three weeks. So that's how good my oaths are, Curtis. But I've heard I, that you're. Yeah. I, I got into this fantastic discussion with the pilot who was on my plane. He wasn't flying the plane; he was just on my plane. And he told me that this airline that we were flying on has an inventory of twelve years worth of jet fuel. I found that oh. in, I found that intriguing, and then I said, "Can you store jet fuel for twelve years?" He said, "Well, apparently, because we have it." So there were so many things about that. So, you know, we are told that we're going to bury CO two under Oliver and Mercer County, North Dakota, and in order to capture that carbon payment, uh, the forty five Q tax credit of eighty five dollars a metric ton. It has to stay there for 12 years. And the first thing that I thought when he said that, yeah, our, our airline has 12 years worth of inventory of fuel in place. And I immediately thought, well, that's a strange number due to the fact that we know in order for Summit to get a carbon payment, they have to leave that CO2 under earth for 12 years. I'm like, what's up with 12 years? Do you find that strange? Well, I, I find that that's the 12 years might be how long they have from the time that the, what, what is it? The inflation reduction act, correct? you know, increased it from 50 to 85, they have 12 years. So the yeah. 12 years, once that CO2 is injected, you know, a mile and some mile and a half below ground in the Broom Creek formation in Oliver and Mercer County, it's going to change. Um, it's, properties are going to change it they're going to inject 98 percent pure co2 because that's what comes off the emissions of natural gas these ethanol plants use a tremendous amount of natural gas the one in cass county north dakota uses about 4 billion cubic feet a year that's very pure co2 that's why all the co2 that a lot of it that comes off for enhanced oil recovery is coming off of gas processing plants like the one that started up in bowman county mm -hmm. 18 months ago that's from the lost cabin or processing plants in Wyoming going into North Dakota and about 18 miles of that line in North Dakota. When they put that CO2 in the ground, Trent, in, in for storage, and it starts migrating through the pore space, um, it it will, its properties, it's it's going to um, combine with the any water content in there. It's going to 
uh, you'll have some carbonic acid. It, it can actually change the prop, the rock matrix. And I don't see them ever withdrawing that CO2 ever. Me either. Uh, first what of all, I don't see happen. it going in. But theoretically, I don't see it coming out if it went in. Right. Because they would have to then essentially process it like you process wet gas, associated gas coming off of an oil well. You'd have you know to separate all of the hydrocarbons and all the other so that they would have to purify it again. What's going to happen is at some point when they decide that they're ready to start injecting this 98% CO2 for enhanced oil recovery in Western North Dakota, and the industry now has come out pretty much clean and, and said that's what they ultimately, why the oil industry is behind this. But they don't have to inject 100% of the you know, 12 to 18 million ton a year that this pipeline, 18 million ton a year, this pipeline is said to be able to move. They don't have to, they could take half of it on day one, inject half of it in the ground, get their $85, send the other half out to the oil industry for the Bach and three fork shale, get their 50 bucks and then sell that CO2 for to oil operators. There's significant value. There, Those oil operators are going to be paying for the CO2. And at some point, down the road, if the demand for enhanced oil recovery in the Bakken Three Fork Shale for CO2 is significant enough, 100% of that pipe flow, will, will, there will be no sequestration. This is just a stop in time to be able to pay for the pipe using 45Q credits, and the taxpayers are going to pay for the pipe. And then the pipe will be there. They can use it 100% for enhanced oil recovery, or they can convert the darn thing to a natural gas or oil line and send the other direction. Curtis, I was told by somebody that I won't name, but is as credible as there is when it comes to Bakken oil recovery, that 100% CO2 will not work well in enhanced oil recovery. To get it to work right, it will take a blend of 50% natural gas with 50% CO2 to get the enhanced oil recovery they want. Well, there you go. So there, there's going to be another chunk of our natural gas stream taken out of you know, the pipeline system that is going to affect and drive up our natural gas prices we all pay. Mm -hmm. And what do you what do you suppose all the compressor stations and all they're going to use to move the CO2? They're going to run on natural gas. You know, in Trailblazer, there's a natural gas pipeline that's going out of service, but then you go, oh, is it really going out of service? No, as part of their FERC filing, uh, that capacity is being upgraded on the parallel REX line. They're the Rex line, the Parallels Trailblazer, is adding 7,800 horsepower. They're, they're, they're spending millions of dollars, 7,800 horsepower. They're going to be adding an 18-mile additional 20-inch lateral. Basically, they're going to use that Trailblazer for CO2, spend millions of dollars to upgrade the Rockies Express, and all of those line taps for towns and uh, along the Trailblazer, there's uh, how many? Eight taps that are going to be made on new taps on Rockies. The natural gas customers are going to be paying for all those upgrades to Rockies that, so they can the same, and they're going to increase the capacity on Rockies by double from 400 million a day to over 900 million a day. All of this just equates to driving up our natural gas prices in addition to all the electricity being used in, in carbon capture and underground storage. 
And theoretically, that line you're talking about called Rockies is to go to a, an underground area similar to Oliver Mercer County, North Dakota, under Cheyenne, Wyoming, called the Denver Julesburg Formation. Right. And it's the trailblazer. The Rockies Express is going to still be a natural gas pipeline. The oh, trailblazer the, the tall gra- running the tall from grass, Beatrice. Yeah. Tall grass owns both of those, Trent. So oh, they own both the trailblazer. Okay. Yep. The trailblazer natural gas pipeline is going to be converted to CO2 from Beatrice, Nebraska, all the way to Cheyenne. That volume is going to be upgraded and transferred to the Rockies Express by adding 7,800 horsepower to Rockies Express and um, all sorts of new, another 18-mile, 20-inch pipe, and all sorts of other additional facilities, millions of dollars, so that that natural gas service can be just simply transferred to Rockies Express. So, And then FERC has relegated the safety of that Trailblazer CO2 pipeline to PHMSA. And and yet PHMSA came out Four months ago, Curtis, and said that we are not going to overstep the authority of a local a local county or state government in this regulatory system. They did. They sent that to the counties. Yep. I'm in good contact with Burley County and Emmons County. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they received that that letter. And on Friday, as you know, um, the, the PSC, you know, they had their hearing on December 21st on whether to supersede. The attorneys all got to give their little ditty on Friday. They got a, they have a working session uh, uh, Friday afternoon at like three o'clock um, at the Capitol. It's, it's not a public thing. It's nobody's going to be except sitting, watching them discuss, and they may come out with a decision, the PSC. I think it's going to be very troubling if they supersede Burley and Emmons and all the counties in North Dakota, our ordinances. And, but you're right about what FEMSA said. The problem is that we do not have the same public service commission or public utilities council uh, like our commission, like North Dakota and South Dakota does in Nebraska. So we're a little bit handicapped in that regard. Curtis Junk, we have one more segment. We will continue this. And I got a tough question for you when we come back more. Roll route on a red shirt Friday with Curtis Junk. Before I let you go, let me remind you, certified Piedmontese, Working with the Great Plains Cattlemen, Great Plains Cattlemen only, to produce the most tender, consistently tender supply of beef, thanks to the Piedmontese breed, the myostatin gene, and the selection pressure that Lone Creek Cattle Company has put on the system. More details about how you do not need to go to the store. The tender beef is delivered to your door by going to the website cpbeef.com. And once you get to that website, you're going to learn, hey, This is a protein plethora. It's not just about beef. It's about enhancing your life with protein. Details and order. CPBeef.com Welcome back, Roll Route. We are into the final segment on Red Shirt Friday. My guest, Curtis Junt, joining us from North Dakota, talking about the energy complex, the safety of the lack of safety when it comes to the plume model on CO2 pipelines and all things energy-related. I have a tough question, but I'm going to save that for a moment. What do you make of your governor, Doug Burgum, who announced that he's not going to run for a third term 
after he made some very bold statements about what was going to happen with injecting CO2 in North Dakota and pipelines, and now he's not going to be here to see it through. What's your take on that? Uh, you know, I, I guess I think in some way or another, he's still going to be involved. Um, we don't know if he will have a position you know, is he going to be the energy secretary under, say, a new administration, potentially? Um, I think that, you know, he's he's involved. He has a pretty good relationship with some of the significant proponents, um, whether it's uh, the governors of North Dakota, South Dakota, or Bruce Rassetter, or Harold Hamm, or Gary Tharlson. He's very uh, much aligned with them in philosophy and, uh, you know, this whole CO2, CCUS movement. So, I think uh, behind the scenes, he will he will be involved regardless. I thought you were going to say that he's, he gets along with Gavin Newsom so well, he'll be a shoe-in in the new administration. Oh, yeah, good Lord. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was almost tongue-in-cheek comment. But the tough question, and nobody wants to talk about this, so I'm going to ask you. I was at the Oklahoma State Capitol on Halloween last fall. And we were talking about 30 by 30. We're talking about so many of these issues. And Oklahoma, as you all know, has been such a great energy producing state. They are now starting to talk about something that nobody seems to want to talk about, Curtis. And that is U.S. US Geological Service says that injecting fluids into Earth causes earthquakes. Not the fracking itself, but it's the injection of fluids. And they talked about the dramatic increase in the number of earthquakes in Oklahoma since 2015. Is this on your radar? And, and what's your take on this? Brent, I've been following that um, for probably a couple of decades with the uh, significant injection of salt water mm -hmm. up here in North Dakota and other parts, Texas. Um, it's, it's, intuitive that you inject especially water uh, fluids that are not compressible they're not compressible and you inject them into the ground and you're shoving them under significant uh, pressure head to get them to move into a formation that that you wouldn't have some impact of tremors um, co2 i think could be the same it certainly could be the same thing you're going to be injecting that underground the bottom hole pressure um you have to look at the frac gradient of the rock and i've read some uh, technical stuff on the broom creek but you're going to be over 3000 psi probably at bottom hole and they're shoving you know and, and uh higher at the wellhead where they're injecting it's going to be significant pressure that they're going to be injecting the co2 underground it is intuitive that you could affect seismic activity I believe that that is going to be one of the unintended consequences, and there are many in the CO2, CCUS, whatever you want to call it. I have my own names for it, uh, one of it being a debacle, but uh, um, yeah. or hoax. An another one getting me kicked off the air, so I appreciate you refraining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did Correct. you see the earlier this year Cornell University study 
about how they've determined by studying volcanic activity that it's CO2 that actually causes the explosion, not water changing temperature as they had previously thought. And if you understand what happened at Lake Nyos, it's pretty easy to see that this is potentially a wreck. Putting Correct. CO2 and in yeah, the ground. And I know all Correct. I know all about Lake Niles, but you know, when you have the combustion, you know, going on and down in our core of the earth, I mean, one of the byproducts of combustion is CO2 and that CO2 um, through, uh, you know, a, a fault or whatever in the bottom of that volcano that was formed Lake Niles, that CO2 is being emitted to the base and CO2 is, 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 when you look at the water column of the depth of Lake Nyos, it took many, many years, if not decades, for that CO2 to build up in the very bottom of Lake Nyos before it finally bubbled to the top. And when it bubbled to the top, there was probably other gases. There was probably methane gas and some others. Mm -hmm. Well, those gases went up. They're lighter. But the CO2 went flowing down the mountainside and succumbed that whole village sleeping at night and filled the whole valley, killed 3,500 cattle and 1,700 plus folks that were sleeping. And uh, that that is just the nature of CO2, unfortunately. It is heavier than air. And that, you know, if it were half the weight of air like natural gas, we would have less of a concern, far less of a concern. Because if there was a rupture, most of it would continue to rise up to the upper atmosphere. And it does drive me nuts when people refer to the atmosphere as though it's one just the atmosphere is the atmosphere, Trent. We have the troposphere, the mesosphere, the stratosphere, the thermosphere. And where's the uh, ozone layer? The ozone layer is in the upper layer of the stratosphere. So CO2 levels up there are not equatable to the CO2 levels we have down here. And it drives me nuts when folks talk as though there's just one atmosphere. So um, CO2 stays to the ground it's life-giving it's just one of its physical properties that is exact science that you can't argue with why would it be curtis that our government the world has determined that 430 parts per million co2 in the atmosphere is a dangerous thing and yet all greenhouses run right at 800 parts per million co2 for increased plant growth doesn't that just tell the whole story it does. Like I said, Trent, 0.03 to 0.05% by volume. And when people, if people want to know, you said 450 uh, parts per million, that's 0.045. Yeah. Four, so that's 0.045. So 400 parts per million is 0.04%. So 0.05 or 500 parts per million is 0.05. So if people want to equate parts per million to percent, 1,000 ppm is 0.1% CO2. And you're right. You need significant CO2 in order for photosynthesis to occur. And one of the beautiful things of photosynthesis is it produces oxygen. So I ask people, where do you suppose oxygen comes from? How is it produced? <laughs> it's from CO2 flowing across the oceans and mixing with the water, you get oxygen. And photosynthesis, which you know is significant. You've just motivated me. I'm going to start doing that. Just in random public places, I'm going to randomly ask people, where does oxygen come from? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody will tell nobody. Somebody might tell you, well, they might know photosynthesis consumes CO2. All the CO2 stays at the ground. And if we had a significant problem of CO2 emissions, don't you think you and I and everyone else would have trouble breathing? Mm -hmm. We don't. It's still 450 parts per million is no big deal. So. So the last couple of minutes here, Curtis, there's tremendous amount of rhetoric, a lot of narrative. People want to have big win windfalls. We've talked about the commodity benefit because we tend to forget there's currently 17 commercial uses for CO2. It's something that needs to remain in the atmosphere, but yet we can utilize it for a tremendous commodity. We just do not, I, I can't speak for you, I do not support collecting it and putting it, using a third of the energy produced at the plant, wherever it's collected, suppressing it, putting it in a pipeline at 32 degrees, Correct. and then talking about taking it and putting it a mile and a half under earth. What, what What's the closing couple minutes here that we really need to take to heart? And what do, what do you suggest we do that want to make a difference in this? Brent, I have one word for all of this CCUS stuff. It's insane. It's insanity. You're right. They're going to Everything points to we, the, the, the rate payer, the taxpayer, we are, we're the ones that are going to, it's, we're going to be holding the price tag on all this. A third of the output of a coal plant that does CCUS will go to the whole CCUS process of capturing and, and compressing and storing underground. The, the MISO grid this winter, um, 16,000 megawatts predicted shortfall for a peak. The Southwest Power Pool, this is this was all published in like November, 8,500 megawatt shortfall. That's why I was nervous this last two weeks. I was waiting, you know, for rolling blackout. But my electric, rural electric provider here in rural Burley County, they, they did a significant increase last May. So we're being charged grid capacity charges now because they're going out and contracting for capacity. But everything seems to just take more power off the grid and consume more of our natural gas. It's all of it's insane with no, and it's all based on this is going to help the environment. So what's happened is the fossil fuel industry has said, you know what, we can't, we can't beat them. So we may as well just, we may as well join them. They're, they're, even though you don't believe in this, they're going after it and they're trying to, you know, the green movement keeps throwing the CO2. So they're, they're doing this to try to keep the industry alive and, you know, beat them at their own game, I guess, but it's all insane. And you and I, as ratepayers and taxpayers, are footing the bill for all of this insanity. I just wish folks that are in the energy business would stop deciding that, okay, we decide we'd rather bleed a slow, long death than just do it right now. Because we cannot afford to allow this death no matter what. We built a nation that is energy and food dependent, independent. And now we're willing to just Correct. throw it away because somebody said, there's a new green deal. Sign up for it now. We'll pad your pocket. There's a price to pay. Exactly. Curtis. Exactly, Trenton. Instead of fighting the whole, whole insanity of it all, um, and, you know, they're just, well, you know, we, we may as well we may as well just join in. And, and, you know, this country would not have developed into a super economy without low-cost, reliable energy. And do you not think China doesn't know that? In 2022, they added 106 gigawatts of coal-fired power, and they're increasing their use of fossil fuels 20% a year with their huge population. 
and all their manufacturing, which, you know, they took most of it away from the U.S. So that they, they know that low-cost energy is what will put them into a superpower economy. And they have lobbyists, big firm out of San Francisco, that they fund to fund groups across our country against fossil fuels. Curtis Jump, we will do this again. Crazy. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it, and I uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Trent. It's a pleasure. Take care. With that, we've successfully journeyed down the path, connecting food producers to food consumers. For Curtis Jump, I'm Trent Luce. Both of us are reminding you that all roads do lead to a roll route. <laughs>